Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Um, I had thought that we were going to get the whole of chapter 14 done tonight, um, but last night we only got through verse 11, and probably that's as far as we're going to get tonight because I try to keep both Bible studies uh, the same distance, and most likely that's about as far as we're going to get. There's a lot tonight we need to really take a look at, and so let's be Ask God to really get you ready for what he wants to talk to you about tonight, because we're going to take a look at something in here tonight that is actually going to correlate to today even more than normal. So in Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, it says, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols." Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of the Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I the Lord will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike, that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. If you go back to verse 1, it says, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. These certain elders of Israel are a different group of elders than the ones we had already seen sitting before Ezekiel in chapter 8. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1. Let me remind you of what we saw there. In Ezekiel 8, verse 1, it says, In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And so in chapter 8, if you remember, chapters 8 through 11, he has the Spirit come and takes him in a vision to Jerusalem, and he shares with the elders of Judah all the things that God had showed him and spoken through him. So there were elders of Judah sitting before Ezekiel in his house, and God spoke through Ezekiel to them. But now we see in chapter 14, it says, certain of the elders of Israel came to me. Remember, the northern kingdom had taken, been taken captive by Assyria into that area. Babylon took over, and Babylonians started taking some of the people of Judah into Babylon. And now these are elders of the people of Israel, and these are different elders. But they come to consult Ezekiel to find out what God has to say. And God says, these elders have taken their idols into their hearts. In other words, he says, they really don't want to know what I have to say. They're more curious about what I have to say than really wanting to know what I have to say. Have you ever had somebody do that to you? They ask you a question, but they really don't know, want to care for what you really, they're just more curious what you think, but they already know they've already made up their mind. 
This is the attitude of the heart of these elders that came to Ezekiel to ask of God. They've already made up their mind. They're not going to listen no matter what God says. They've already know their hearts are toward their idols. And God says, shall I let myself be inquired of by them? He said, actually, you tell these guys that have come to you to inquire of me, you're not to answer them. I'll speak to them myself. Now, many of us would say, cool. Instead of hearing God through the prophet, God will speak to them himself. But if you look closely, that's not something you want. Uh, Look at verses 2 and 3 again. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. These men have taken their idols into their hearts and have set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? And then he's going to go in and say, I'm going to answer myself. But before I get to that, I want to take a second to kind of remind you of something you probably already know. And hopefully, I'm pretty sure everybody in here does know, but we need to be reminded of it. These guys came to the prophet wanting to know, in theory, what God had to say. But God knew their hearts. I'm going to say this to you, and I'm going to show you from Scripture. You can't fool God, folks. You cannot fool God. You can fool each other. You can even fool your spouse. You can even fool me. But you can't fool God. Go to Psalm 139. 139, we'll look at verses 1 through 4. It says, O Lord, David's writing, he says, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. David says, There's not only nothing you don't know about me, before a word even makes to my tongue, you already know my thoughts. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you're not going to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul actually says that we're not to make judgments about people because the Lord's going to judge when he comes and he will disclose the purposes of people's hearts, their real motives for why they do what they do. In James chapter 4, we're going to see in just a little bit as we look at this passage, God's going to say, you ask and you don't receive, but it's because your desire is to use it in your own passions. And he knows why we ask sometimes. Go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he, this is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Here he's there, and these people believed in him, and Jesus says, actually, they don't. They're responding to the miracles, but they really don't believe. Everybody else, we all would have been fooled. We all would have thought, hey, these people believe. But Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew they really didn't. And he didn't entrust himself to them. Go to Luke chapter 20. Look at verses 19 through 26. In Luke chapter 20, verse 19, it says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that's Jesus, At that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. The parable, by the way, we're actually going to look at next week in our study. Um, But so we'll just save the parable for next week. But they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. 
that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority of juris and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the, th Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he had said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. We see in this story, the people pretended to be sincere. They laid it on thick, but he knew their thoughts. And I say that to you because I want you to hear something tonight. Folks, it's foolish for all of us to try to pretend to worship God when we're hanging on to sin in our hearts. Isn't that what God said about these certain elders? They've taken their idols to their hearts. They've taken their idols to their hearts. And when we treasure sin, you do all still struggle with sin, correct? I do. Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. Paul understood this struggle. Anybody says they don't sin, they're a liar. The truth's not in them, the Bible says in 1 John. But at the same time, even though we struggle with it, there's a difference between wrestling with sin and treasuring sin. In the Bible, I want you to see it from God's own words. Go to Psalm 66 and look at verse 18. As a young uh, believer, this became one of my very important verses in my life that God would use to help me live my life in a way that was pure. In Psalm 66, verse 18, it says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had treasured sin, God doesn't listen. Back to the Bible, in the book of Peter talks about husband-wife relationships needing to be reconciled so the Lord will answer your prayers. If you've got a husband-wife relationship that's not being reconciled and you don't deal with it, the Bible says it affects your prayers. If I treasured sin, God says, the Lord wouldn't hear me. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Look at what he says. These people honor me with their mouths, but their hearts aren't in it. That's chapter 15 of Matthew, verses 8 and 9. You're in Matthew, back up to verse 5. I'm sorry, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. He says, when you go to worship, if there's something when you're there, by the way, if you're going to worship, and you're, you're bringing your gift, if you will, and then you remember that there's a problem between you and somebody else, a brother and sister in Christ, how did that thought even come to your mind? God brought it there. The Lord convicted you. And if you're there to worship and the Lord convicts you of something, what does the scripture say to do? Deal with it and then come back and worship. Folks, how often have we had the Lord tell us, you need to go get right with so-and-so. They might even be just across the sanctuary. But we have thought, I'll do it later. The Lord said, well, you might as well go because your worship isn't going to be effective today. 
If I treasure sin, the Lord won't hear me. If I honor him with my lips, but my heart's not in it, it's a waste of time. My worship's in vain. And I want you to understand that this same God that knows the thought before it even makes our tongue, the same God that knew everybody's motives, and he knows about us as well. And we have to be honest and be willing to stay humble and teachable and moldable. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight in great detail. Go back to now Ezekiel chapter 14. Like I said, God then tells Ezekiel that he will not, that he will not speak to those people through the prophet, but he will answer them himself. By the way, as you're about to see, he's going to answer them not with words, but with actions. Look at verses 4 through 8 again. Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. Now don't miss verse 8 because there's something important I want to see you to see in verse 8. God says, and I will set my face against that man, and I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So when God says, hey, if someone comes to the prophet and their hearts aren't where they are to be, and I tell the prophet, don't you answer them because I'm going to answer them myself. And then God says, here's how I'm going to answer them myself. I'm going to set my face against them, and I'm going to what? I'm going to cut them off. I'm going to judge them. They're going to be destroyed. By the way, this is where I want to take you back to the book of Leviticus. Go to Leviticus chapter 20. I want to remind you, we've been seeing this a lot, but I want to be using the Lord hopefully to burn this into your brains. The best way to understand the second half of the scriptures is to know the first half of the scriptures. What I mean by that is this. Too many Christians today are trying to interpret the New Testament with just the New Testament. But as you remember, when Jesus came on the scene and he taught, what did he use as his proof that his teaching was of God? The Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. He kept quoting from the Law and the Prophets over and over and over. At the same time, you, the, the New Testament writers, the apostles, as God would speak through them, and you see it all the way through, what did they use to demonstrate that what they were teaching was of God? The Old Testament. But most Christians today, unfortunately, are trying to build their theology when it comes to the church in the New Testament time period with just New Testament. You need to understand the Old Testament. And actually, what I'm about to show you is when God through Ezekiel says, I'm going to set my face against that person, it's not the first time it's been said. Go back to Leviticus, like I said, chapter 20. And look at verses 1 through 8. Way, way back. The time of Moses said, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel are the strangers who sojourn in Israel. Does that sound familiar? It's almost word for word what God said through Moses. Any of the people of Israel and any of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. 
I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among the people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. If a person turns to a medium or necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I, the Lord your God, for, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So when Jesus is telling Ezekiel these words, it's not the first time he said it. He's already said this again, almost word for word through Moses. And he says, look, I want you to realize that if someone's going to treasure sin, you need to deal with it. And if not, I'm going to deal with it. So I want to ask you a question tonight. Why does God take such harsh measures? We've seen it in Leviticus 20. We've seen it in Ezekiel chapter 14. By the way, our answer is going to come from Ezekiel 14. But why do you think God takes such seriously harsh measures? He said, these people have come. They're treasuring their, their, their idols and their sins still. Um, don't answer them. I'm going to answer them myself. Oh, by the way, I'm going to do that by bringing judgment to them and cutting them off from the people. Why is God being so harsh? That's close. That's close. Other gods? That's definitely a big part of it. That's tied to they knew and they've heard. Go ahead. Because sin is a life and death situation. Very good. Because God knows the seriousness of sin not dealt with. Let me remind you of two stories from the Bible that you probably have known but might not have put them together. Back at the beginning of the nation of Israel, remember, I don't know if you know this or not, you're going to see this later on in some of our readings. When the nation of Israel was in slavery in Egypt, they worshipped idols. You want proof? Remember when they were taken out of Egypt to go worship God on the mountain? And Moses went up on the mountain and he stayed there for 40 days? What did they tell Aaron to do? Make us a golden calf. What did, they just wanted to grab one of the old idols from Egypt. They had been worshiping idols in Egypt, and God pulled them out of that, and he said, no, I'm to be the only God. And he gave them the Ten Commandments, you'll have no other gods, and so on. When they, because of their disobedience, the children of the people who didn't trust God to go in the land became the ones who went into the land. And he takes them to the first city, and he says, okay, here are the instructions. This city of Jericho is going to be devoted to me. No one is to take any spoil from this, this battle you consecrate everything to the Lord. Nobody takes anything. We're going to wipe the people out, and you'll take nothing. But there was a man named Achan who actually saw some gold and some nice pieces of clothing, and he kept them, and he hid it in his tent. The next battle they come to is a real small little city called Ai, and, and Joshua realized we don't even need the whole army. We're just going to send a few guys, and they get whooped. Joshua falls on his face and says, God, what's going on? God says, get up. There's sin in the camp. And God, through the way that he did then, through the Urim and the Thummim, as they cast lots, they brought all the tribes out and they kept saying, is this tribe? Yes or no? And they'd throw the Urim and Thummim and it would come up no. Is it this tribe? Throw the Urim and Thummim and it would come up no. And eventually it came yes to a certain tribe. From then they had to then, from with that tribe, start separating the families and say, is it this family? No. This family? No. And it came down to God showed them it was Achan. 
Does anybody know when they pulled the stuff out of his tent, what God had them do to Achan and his whole family? They were to be stoned right then and put to death right then. Do we see God do that with everybody that sinned? David sinned some bad sins, and there are, there are other people that sinned. But why? Because God is showing at the beginning of the nation of Israel the seriousness of sin. And that sin is still a serious issue to God. By the way, in Acts chapter 5, at the beginning of the church age, we see at the end of chapter 4 that this guy Barnabas had sold a piece of property and just gave the money to the church. At the end of chapter 4, we see that. Beginning of chapter 5, there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. You might have heard of them. And they sold a piece of property, too. They kept some of the money, which was, there's nothing wrong with keeping some of the money. But they pretended like the whole amount that they got for the land they gave to the church. Peter says, because God opens his eyes to this truth, Peter says to the husband Ananias, he said, by the way, is this the whole amount? He goes, yep. What happened to him? God struck him dead right there. Some guys came and carried his body and buried him. Three hours later, his wife comes in. He says, let me ask you a question. Is this the full amount? And she continues the lie, and God struck her dead. Now, I'm going to ask for an honest question here, and I want to show of hands. Has anybody here who's a part of the church ever lied since you've been saved? How come you're still here? Grace. Then why did God treat so harshly Ananias and Sapphira for that lie? It was the beginning again, just like with Achan and the nation of Israel's beginning, he's still showing. And if you read on after that, it said a great fear broke out amongst the church, so much so that even though many people kept getting saved, few dared join them. God was showing them the seriousness of sin. So I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And look at verses 1 through 12. Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you guys in the church there in Corinth and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. And by the way, that's pretty serious because if you know anything about Corinth at that time, it was the most sexually wicked city you could ever imagine. And Paul says there's sexual immorality going on in the church that would even shock the Corinthians, the pagans in Corinth. For a man has his father's wife. Now, we don't know the specific details, but in some way, a man is sleeping with someone who had been or was married to his father. And you're arrogant, he says to the church. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us there celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy of the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging the outsiders? It is, is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Look at what Paul says. This sexual immorality is going on and you guys are acting like it's okay. And you're ignoring it. A little sin affects the whole body. You got to get that dealt with. Hand that person over to Satan so his flesh would be destroyed, but his spirit be saved. By the way, in this, he said, even though I'm not present with you, I'm there in spirit. And we need to hear this because what he's actually quoting is Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. You ever heard the preachers always talk about in Matthew 18 where it says where two or three are gathered I'm there in the midst of them. But unfortunately, the preachers always say, as the, Jesus says, if two or three are gathered, he's here with us. And since there's two or three of us here, we know the Lord is here. And everything in me and my prophet side of me wants to stand up in that church and say, so if I was here all by myself, the Lord wouldn't be here? That's not what that passage is saying, folks. In Matthew 18, if you looked at it, Jesus is saying, you got a problem with your brother? You go talk to your brother. If he won't listen to you, you bring someone else for the purpose of reconciliation. If that doesn't work, bring them before the church to be dealt with. And where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, I'm there too in authority as you deal with the person that needs to be dealt with by the church. Do you understand the context? Paul was quoting Jesus. He said, look, as you guys are gathered to deal with this issue, I'm there with you in spirit. And as an apostle and the authority God's given me, I've already told you what my vote is. Get that guy out. You need to deal with it. And folks, praise the Lord for the churches that deal with that because there's a lot of churches that unfortunately just kind of put lipstick on the pig and they don't want to get people offended and they try to pretend like sin isn't sin. And man, people get offended and people get hurt and mad when you say, look, this needs to stop. Well, I don't think it's that big of a deal or I don't think it's any of your business. The Bible says sin is serious and we need to take serious sin. And that's one of the reasons why God says to the, the people there in Ezekiel, they're treasuring sin. I'm going to deal with it myself. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Paul's writing to the church in Galatia there, and some people had started to teach that you weren't saved by faith alone, you were saved by belief in Jesus and doing certain things like circumcision. In Galatians chapter 5, look at verses 7 through 9. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And there it is again, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. By the way, if you know anything about Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's so upset about these people that are teaching you how to be circumcised in order to be saved. He says, I wish they would cut everything off. Not just the tip, but at all. That's what he actually says it in this letter. I wish they cut the whole thing off. He's so upset about it. And what does he say? Guys, this is going to do damage. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Look at verses 18 through 23. Jesus is writing to the church in Thyatira. He says to the angel, the messenger of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. 
You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. That's going to be important for where we're going next. Don't miss that. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Here Jesus is writing to the church. He says there's a woman in there who calls herself a prophetess, and her teaching is saying that sexual immorality is okay, and what he meant by eating food sacrificed to idols. In other words, it doesn't matter what you do, we're under grace. And there's people that teach that. Since we're forgiven by God, you can do whatever you want because it's all under the cross. It's all under the blood. And the Bible's really clear that even though we have been spared the penalty of sin when it comes to damnation, there's still consequences for sin for Christians. We're going to touch on that in just a little bit. But what does Jesus said? He says, I gave her time to repent. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 14. Like I told you, there's two main reasons why God is dealing with these elders and this sin of treasuring sin in their hearts so harshly. The first one is, is he knows the seriousness and the danger of sin not dealt with. The second reason is because his ultimate purpose is to bring about repentance. But I'm going to say this to you, and you probably might not have ever put it two and two together, but let me just put it to you this way. God's purpose in dealing harshly with sin is to bring about repentance, but he also knows something that we probably deep down know as well. Unfortunately, when it comes to humans, repentance doesn't usually happen until we're brought to hit bottom. And let's be honest, I've been preaching for over 30 years. I've preached this word repent many a time. But if we're honest, how often have we actually seen individuals repent because of the conviction of the Lord of things that no one else knew they were doing and the Spirit of God convicted them and their life was changed? Most of the time when we see people broken in repentance, what's happened? Their sin had become public. And God had to deal with it harshly. They might have lost their family. They might have lost their ministry. They, I'm dealing right now with a situation where I just found out this week about an individual that I've been working with in my ministry for over nine years. And just found out that he's no longer in the pastorate because of a moral failure. And to be honest with you, it's shocking to me. I would have thought this would be the last person who would ever do this. But I also found out that it had been going on for a while. And it wasn't until he was found out that there was repentance. In Ezekiel chapter 14, look at verses 4 through 6 again. It says, Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. Why? Look at verse 6 that I may lay a hold, sorry, verse 5, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. That's why he's doing this. We read about how he says, if you see anybody offering their child to Molech, put them to death right now, stone them. And it reads like the moment you sin, you're done with. But that's not who God is. 
What did he say about Jezebel? I've given her time to repent of her sins. God had been, let me ask you folks, whenever you're convicted of a sin after you've done it, is that the first time that God had ever talked to you about it? <laughs> no, he's already been talking to you prior to it saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And God's desire is that he may take a hold of the hearts of the house of Israel. Look at verse uh, 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. James chapter 4. I want you to see this. This is written to the church. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. Paul says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Oh, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Folks, listen to me. If you are a child of God through Jesus Christ, you will never be condemned. You will never lose your salvation. The Bible is extremely clear that once you've been given salvation and he sealed you by his spirit, you are eternally secure. But listen to me. That doesn't mean that God won't deal with you because of sin. John even says, I write this to you, my little children, so that you won't sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate. We have one that's interceding for us. But the Bible also says that there comes a point where there is sin unto death. The Bible, Paul says, don't grieve the spirit of God or quench the spirit of God. When we hold on to sin as children of God, as Christians, and we treasure sin, we all have admitted we still struggle with sin. But when we treasure sin and we aren't broken about our sin and we don't confess and agree with God that it's sin. And even if we say, yeah, you're right, but we just keep doing it over and over and over. There comes a point where the Bible says that it starts to put friction between us and the Lord. You're not losing your relationship. He's still your child, but your relationship is going to be hindered and your fellowship's going to be hindered. And the Bible says there comes a point where if you don't respond in the repentance that he's trying to bring about. He will take you home early. He says, look, you see someone in sin, pray for them. And then he says, oh, by the way, there are sins that are unto death. I'm not saying pray about that type of sin, because if God's already determined this person's coming home early, you can pray all you want. And so, folks, I want you to hear this. We could easily look at the elders of Israel who had treasured sin in their heart. And God just said, Jim, show them all through my word. I speak to the church too, saying, repent, repent, repent. We don't have time to have you turn there, but just if you want to write these down, many of Jesus' messages to the church in Revelation included repentance. In Ephesus, in verse 5, he says, repent. Realize the height from which you've fallen. Pergamum, in verse 16, he says, repent. 
To Thyatira, we just saw in verses 21 and 23, he says, repent. To the church in Sardis, verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, repent. Folks, we need to have an attitude that stays humble before God and acknowledges the fact that we're still in these fleshly bodies that still are prone to sin. And daily we have to lay our bodies on the altar and yield ourselves to him and be led of the spirit. But we will fall into sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying when you do, do you stay there or do you say, God, help? God, help. But if he's been talking to you about something and you continually don't obey him, he's going to deal harshly. I want you to avoid that. I want to avoid that. Now, let me ask you a question then. Is it necessary for the church today to repent? I hope you a little bit more authoritative on that one. Yes, right? I mean, we've just touched on that. I have to start all over if your answer is no, or I don't know. The answer is yes, but let me ask you a second question, though. Is it our job to bring about repentance? No, and that's very important for you to hear. We're not going to turn there because of time. I've got a lot I still want to cover in the 20 minutes we have left. But in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, Jesus said, it's good for you that I'm going away because if I go away, then the Holy Spirit will come to you. And then he says, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. See, remember back in the day we used to hear about hellfire and brimstone preaching? And there's nothing wrong with preaching about hell because Jesus talked about hell three times more than he talked about heaven. Hell is real and the world needs to know that it's there. The problem with hellfire and brimstone preaching was those preachers typically, not all of them, but the hellfire and brimstone preachers typically felt like it was their job to get the people to respond to the message. They would tell stories that would scare you about a person that left church without responding and got killed in a car crash. And they thought it was their job to bring about the repentance. Some of you are parents or grandparents of children that are away from the Lord. And you may not realize it, but you are doing more damage than good when you try to play the role of the Holy Spirit in your children's lives or your grandchildren's lives. We are to share the truth in 2 Timothy, go to 2 Timothy, you're in the book of James still. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, just back up a couple of books. 2 Timothy chapter 4, listen to what Paul says in verses 1 and 2 to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke. And exhort with complete patience and teaching. He says, look, share with them what the scripture says. Don't try to take it any further than that. Don't try to be the one who convicts them of their sin. Don't be the one who tries to bring about the repentance. Preach it and leave it there. I put in my notes. Do not stay there. Well, let me just put it back up. And sort of, we need to keep in mind that though there will be many who don't want to, there will be many who don't want to hear the truth. Do not stay there and try and hammer home the truth in order to make it stick. The word is powerful. You don't need to swing it harder. The word is powerful. You don't need to swing it harder. And folks, we just need to understand that. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 told them, don't cast your pearls before swine. 
There are some people that are going to want to listen. There are others who won't. There's nothing wrong with throwing your seed out onto the hard path. But don't stay there if it's not, they're not listening. What does Jesus tell them to do when you go into a town and you let your peace go out? If it's received, stick around. If it's not, what are they to do? Say, move on. Shake the dust off. Move on. Go to the next place. And we need to understand, as much as we want someone to listen, someone to, to respond, how many times have we thought to ourselves, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this message? No. The Word of God is powerful by itself. Live the truth. Preach the truth. Leave the results of whether or not they repent to the Lord. He's doing a work, and he'll take care of it. Oh, I got good news for you, though. The truth is available for all who wish to find it. For those who desire to hear, in Matthew, same Matthew 7, verse 6, I quoted to you, don't cast your pearls before swine. You know what the very next verse is? That was easy. The next verse is verse 7. I told you, Matthew 7, verse 6. What's the next verse? It's verse 7, Jim. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be Open. Did you catch that? Don't throw your pearl before swine. But if they do want to hear, truth is available, is there. But if they get it, whose job is it that they got it? It's the Lord's. Paul said, look, if they don't understand what I'm saying, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. But if someone does respond, it wasn't because I worded it so good. It was because God opened their eyes. So we are to be Understanding first and foremost that this message of repentance is for us first. And we're to then live it and share it with others, but leave the results to the Lord. Now, let's go back to chapter 14, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 11 again, because I don't know how many of you caught it, but there's something that God says here in verse 9 that, and following that absolutely made some people on Tuesday go, what? And you might have saw it yourself. Remember, he sold the prophet, look, well, these people have come with the wrong attitude and their hearts are still treasuring sin. Don't answer them. Verse 9 says, And if the prophet is deceived and actually speaks the word when I told him not to, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet. Isn't that interesting? And I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike that the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares the Lord. God says, if I tell the prophet not to answer him, I'm going to deal with it myself. And that's hard for us sometimes, don't we? Because we all want to be the one who tells people what they need to hear. And sometimes we got to leave that to the Lord. and He'll tell you when. At the same time, he says, but if that person speaks... When I told him not to, that prophet is deceived, and I deceived him. All right, that's good. Go home. No, we got to answer this. we got to deal with this. Go to James chapter 1. Again, as you build any theology and you deal with any wrestling match in the Scripture, the things that give you a little bit of pause, you have to use the whole of Scripture to understand it. In James chapter 1, we need to lay a foundation here. Look at verse 13. James chapter 1, verse 13 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, 
I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So the question I ask you then is, when he says that prophet's deceived and I deceived him, is God saying I made him sin? Can't be, because God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. By the way, that's why we got to keep reading past the famous verses we all have, because the next verses actually answer our question. Look at verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Folks, let me just put it to you this way. If a prophet ignores the fact that God had not spoken and speaks anyway, God did not make him do it, but he allowed the wickedness of that prophet's heart to take its full course. When God says, I deceived him, what he's saying is, I control whether I stop people from doing stuff or allow them to do it. And therefore, I let him go down the road that he was wanting to go down. I didn't stop him. Like I told you, there are times that the Spirit of God will convict us ahead of time and say, don't go there, right? Sometimes God won't do that anymore. That person's deceived. And God said, I deceived him. Did God deceive him in the way that we read it? No. What God did was he allowed the man's deceit that was already in his heart to take full root. Actually, let's use some more scripture to help you understand it some more. We're in Ezekiel 14. Jump over to Ezekiel chapter 20. Look at verses 18 through 32, and we're going to especially look at verses 25 and 26. In Ezekiel 20, verse 18, God says, And I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them, brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover... I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts in their offering up all their firstborn that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, in this also your fathers blaspheme me by dealing treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then whenever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree there, they offered sacrifices. And there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas and there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. 
And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord, I will not be inquired of by you. What is in your mind shall never happen, the thought. Let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries and that worship wooden stone. So look again at verses 25 and 26. Now as you're looking back there, it remind you of what God just said. I'm the one that led them out of the wilderness, told them to stop worshiping their idols like their fathers did. I gave them my laws and my commandments that they would live by them, but they didn't listen. I wanted to kill them and just wipe them all out, but for the sake of my name, I kept them alive. But then I just promised them, if you keep doing this, I'm going to disperse you. And in verse 25, he says, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts in their offerings up all their firstborn that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I'm the Lord. Is he talking about the law of Moses when he says, I gave them statutes that they couldn't live by? No, he's not talking about that because Psalm 139, very, sorry, Psalm 119 clearly over and over says that the law of God is pure. The statutes of God are great and wonderful and awesome. He's saying here, they wanted to keep going down that road of worshiping idols, so I lit them. I gave them what they wanted. Isn't that what the book of Romans says? about God giving over the individuals and the nations to their lusts? When a prophet is deceived and speaks when I told him not to speak, I let it happen. And I did it for lots of reasons. One, so that I could judge the prophet and the inquirer alike. But remember, we've talked about this before. God, a lot of times, will allow sin to happen to test us to whether or not we're going to stay faithful to his word. Remember last time we were together, we looked at how there's lots of false prophets in the last days saying certain things are okay and things that the Bible says are not. And we have to decide, are we going to line up with what God says or are we going to follow what man says? And if that prophet is deceived and speaks things that they aren't supposed to speak, God let them do it. Oh, this is a deeper subject than we have time for tonight. But I started to allow God to just open some of my eyes to this. There's something kind of cool here. That means that everything that I need, whether it is the power to live it out or his power to keep it from coming to me, the bad, everything I need comes from him. Do you realize the importance of prayer? Do you realize the importance of daily beginning each day saying, Lord, you control whether or not it even shows up, the temptation. You don't tempt me, but you even, well, how does it say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13? It's God who works in us both to will or desire and to act. All of a sudden, I started to realize what God is saying here is, when that person walked down that road of sin, I had tried to stop them over time, but the sin in their heart was so great, I stopped trying to stop them. I gave them what they wanted. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever want God to give up on you? That's why daily we need to humble ourselves and surrender each day to, well, Jesus taught us it in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Who have we been taught to pray to in the Lord's Prayer? It's the first part of it. Our Father, 
Why, when James 1.13 says God doesn't tempt anyone, does Jesus teach us to pray, Father, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. He's showing us that Satan is always wanting to just tear at us and destroy us. Satan said, what about Job? The only reason he's like that is you won't let me touch him. And folks, every day you get up, you have that protection from God. That's part of, by the way, the whole idea of removing this person from the church fellowship. Hand them over to Satan. Because there's actually a protection that God gives from being amongst the body of believers. Because as you hang out with other Christians, they're going to say, hey, let's go do the right thing. Let's go spend some time together in the word. And then you're going to encourage each other. You know what I'm saying? There's a protection that comes from being in the body of Christ. God each day has the authority to either remove the protection and allow Satan to do what he wants to do or the authority to keep it from happening to us. And even when he allows Satan, he's right there with the temptation, providing a way to escape. God is trying to teach us that everything that we need comes from him. And that even includes defeating sin. Now, as we close tonight, I want to just put it to you this way. We've had a wrong attitude of repentance. We've misunderstood. What are some of the terms you've heard over the years preachers use to describe repentance? Confession. Okay, that's good. Go ahead. Turn away. In, in what way? Remember, we've all heard 180 degrees, right? Repentance is not veering off a little bit. Repentance is you're going in this direction, you go 180 degrees in the other direction. True, but not quite true. How many of you have ever in a service or at an evangelistic rally or any kind of a thing, a camp maybe, been convicted by the Lord about a certain area of your life and you walked down that aisle and said, Lord, I'm not going to do that anymore. I repent of that sin. I'm not going to do that anymore. Or Lord, you've convicted me of a certain area that you want me to start giving over to you. I am going to set my clock earlier. I'm going to start giving. I And you set out to go in the other direction. Anybody done that? How'd that work out? That's not repentance. Repentance is not when you say, I'm going to do better. Repentance is, this is wrong, and that is right. And I don't want to do the wrong anymore. I want to do the right. But I can't even do the right unless you change my heart and you do that work in me. Remember? I'm the Lord. We read it earlier in that passage in Leviticus. I'm the God who sanctifies you. Folks, real repentance. If you understood and you heard this message tonight, if God's spoken to you about a certain area that he wants you to be proactive or a certain area he wants you to get rid of in, in, in repentance and turn away from, if you came out of here tonight saying, I'm going to do better, I'm going in the other direction, you missed it. Repentance is, Lord, you're right. I agree. That's confession. And Lord, I want to go in the other direction. But apart from you, I can't even do that. You're the vine. I'm the branches. All I need to do is believe that you will. I need a heart change about somebody. Lord, give that to me because it's you who work in me both to will and to act. Oh, Jesus, Satan wants to get me. I'm going to pray, please, you keep him away. You keep him away. But if you choose to let him in, may I immediately run to you for your provision through it. God seems harsh, 
but he only is harsh if we turn away from his, well, how did James put it when he was writing to the people about you adulterous people? Don't you realize friendship with the world is enmity with God? What does he say next? But God gives more grace. Everything you need to respond to what I'm talking to you about, God wants to give it. Tonight, I say to you, just like you, by faith, received God's salvation. You said, I can't save myself. But Jesus, you said you would give it to me because I believe you lived the sinless life. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you were punished for me. And tonight, I just say, Lord, save me. And you were saved, right? That's how you live each day now. Thank you that you've given me my righteousness. Now, in order to live out this Christian life, I need you. And what's how the old hymn go? I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. This morning, God woke me up a little earlier because I had preached about this last night. And he woke me up a little earlier this morning. And I spent some time with him and reading some things and checking the scriptures. And I couldn't help but just lay before him and say, and sing that song. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. And God says, that's all I want. Let's walk through life. I'll get you there. So, don't set out to do things for God. There is a big difference between being a motorboat for the Lord, that's your own power, and a sailboat pushed by the Spirit. Let me leave you with one last verse. In Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 16, it says, And those who are led of the Spirit are the children of God. Don't miss that. He doesn't say, And those who have the Spirit are the children of God. He said, Those who are led of the Spirit, are the children of God. I love you. We'll see you next week.